Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no clue how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Stetzel. Last week, I told you about the larger intercultural tensions which led to the death of William Blackmer in a war that many people today have never heard of, but which in colonial times was a little more than just a footnote. Today, I'm going to tell you another story about an event another one of my ancestors was involved in, the capture of Fort Ticonderoga in 1775. This event was more than a footnote back then, and it remains today one of the seminal events in American history. If you took a class in American history in high school, you should be at least vaguely aware of the story, even if the details don't spring to mind. After all, high school history classes usually have to gloss over a lot in order to fit everything in that they need to fit in. And that, by the way, is something that really grinds my gears about most people's knowledge of American history. And that's a shame, because I can't stress to you enough what a great story this is. It has everything a historian could want. It has suspense, colorful characters, tangents that can go on for hours at a time if I let them. But most importantly, it's an inflection point. That means that in the absence of this event, the rest of American history simply doesn't happen in a way we would recognize. And as a bonus, it has major implications for the greater political debate of its time. That's something I'll talk about at the end, and I'll explain something that gets missed by most historians covering the American Revolution. As I said, I'm going to tell this story mostly through the eyes of my ancestor, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, that's sixth great-grandfather if you weren't counting, a man named Ephraim Blackmer. In my original draft of Ephraim's biography, which I wrote for a book, I actually covered Ephraim and his father, Joseph Blackmer Jr., together, Because almost everything we know about Joseph occurred after Ephraim's birth, their lives ended less than a year apart, and the major known events in their lives were thematically connected. Here, however, I'm going to stick mostly to Ephraim in telling the story about Ticonderoga. Ephraim Blackmer was born on 20th of July, 1755, probably in Sharon, Connecticut. I I say probably because his family seems to have moved around a little bit in the early or to mid-18th century, but always remained in the area of New Marlboro, Massachusetts, where Ephraim's grandfather, Joseph Blackmer Sr., had settled in 1741. Uh, Sharon is just across what is now the state line in the western parts of Massachusetts and Connecticut. Property records from Connecticut at this time are a little difficult to come by, but Ephraim's father, Joseph Blackmer Jr., seems to have moved the family to Sharon before Ephraim was born, and I don't think he returned to Marlboro until after the death of Joseph Blackmer Sr. in the spring of 1771. Ephraim was probably included in the settlement of Joseph Sr.'s estate, since he seems to have come into some serious money at an early age. On 8th of January, 1772, Ephraim, just 16 years old, paid Timothy Dimmick Jr. of Mansfield, Connecticut, 31 pounds for 30 acres of land on the main road from New Marlboro to Norfolk. Later that year, he attended a tax auction where he purchased an additional 20 acres for a paltry 8 shillings and 10 pence. By the time he was an adult, by modern standards, Ephraim owned 55 acres of land, but we know almost nothing about what he actually did with it. We know very little about the types of work Ephraim was engaged in at this time, and more about what he engaged in later in life, and Farmer doesn't seem to be very high on the list. And then we have a statement made by Ephraim's son, Zoar Blackmer, many, many years later. According to an affidavit made by Zoar, when Ephraim was around 18 years old, he purchased 360 acres of land in the New Hampshire Grants, it's what we now call Vermont, 
which, according to Zohar, he, quote, sacrificed during the revolution. 360 acres might seem like a lot of land for a teenager, and it, it absolutely was, but he probably did not pay very much for it. The grants were hotly contested between New Hampshire and New York, and with no certainty over the future of the region, settlers tended to be a combination of gamblers, both the traditional kind as well as land speculators, along with ruffians and the very poor. Ephraim apparently moved to the new town of Pulteney around 1774, and seemingly with some good reason. Many of the settlers of that town came from New Marlborough or Litchfield County, Connecticut, where Sharon is. The names of those found on the deed indexes of Pulteney include many of the surnames we would associate with the Blackmer family back in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Families like the Browns, the Pixleys, Warners, and Dimmicks. The Wards and the Keys were two of the families who joined the Blackmers when they followed Benjamin Wheeler to New Marlborough back in 1741, and we find them again in Pulteney. Other prominent members of the new community were associated with the Blackmers as well. Uh, John Ashley, for example, was one of the brothers of the town's first settlers and had been one of the judges in the Court of Common Pleas that uh, Blackmer uh, became fairly well acquainted with back home. Ashley, along with several other town proprietors, would feature prominently in Ephraim's life for the next few years thanks to an evolving political situation already well underway when he arrived, and believe it or not, I don't just mean the American Revolution. You see, even if Ephraim knew many people in the new town, at the time he bought land in Pulteney, the political situation in the Grants meant the purchase was not a safe bet. The town lay on the Pulteney River, right on what is today the border with New York. New Hampshire's former governor, Benning Wentworth, had written out a number of charters for this territory in the 1760s. Now, this greatly annoyed the government of New York, which laid claim to the same region. The two colonies engaged in years of legal wrangling that's just too esoteric to be detailed here, but when the Crown ruled against New Hampshire, New York imposed a hefty validation fee, they called it, on settlers with land grants from New Hampshire. This fee was in many cases almost as much as settlers had paid for the land in the first place, and many were indignant at being told to pay for the same real estate twice. This was especially galling and politically prescient because the settlers saw the controversial Stamp Act as a means of royal governors, not just the royal government in London, but the royal governors in the colonies, a means for them to enrich themselves at the expense of the colonists. It was also no small matter that both Wentworth and New York's governor personally profited from the granting of land on the same property, each one taking a cut of the profits. New York's governor, Cadwallader Colden, skimmed 30,000 Spanish dollars off the top, and that was in addition to whatever Wentworth had already made. In fact, Colden was so voracious in collecting his fee that he only stopped when, quote, he ran out of the watermark stationery required for legal transactions under Britain's Stamp Act, unquote. Life was made very difficult for his New York surveyors and other officials who attempted to impose these fees, as you can imagine, and they were violently driven out of the grants for their trouble. One of the men most active in pushing back against New York was Ethan Allen, a Connecticut-born land speculator, all-around roughhouser, and one of the proprietors of, among other towns, Pulteney. Allen, with his cousins Seth Warner and Remember Baker, had formed a militia called the Green Mountain Boys in 1770. A militia? In America? You don't say. They formed it when they didn't feel like their less forceful means of making their point had succeeded. 
Specifically, they formed it after an appeal to the Supreme Court of New York had been flatly rejected. They then spent four years lobbing threats at New York's new governor, Tyron, and driving New Yorkers out of the disputed land. The end result was that by the time Ephraim Blackmer arrived in 1774, the Green Mountain Boys had become famous, so famous, in fact, that the price on Allen's head had increased fivefold, interference with New York officials had become punishable by death, and discussing this interference in groups of more than three was outlawed. When violence cost two men their lives in March 1775, a meeting was held at a town called Westminster, and discussions began to refine the idea of making the New Hampshire grants into a new and separate colony with approval from the king. The incident, known as the Westminster Massacre, was the story of the day, and took prime position as the only topic of conversation amongst the settlers and the grants. This, of course, only lasted a few weeks. In April, for reasons clear to anyone with a working knowledge of American history, animosity between colonists and the British government had broken out into open fighting at Lexington and Concord. And that, of course, brings us to the Revolution. There was a general sense among historians that about a third of all colonists were in favor of independence, a third were loyalists, and a third were completely neutral. These historians are not talking about Pulteney. According to a son of one of the Ashleys, there were only two Tories, meaning loyalists, in Pulteney during the Revolution out of dozens of families. No surprise here. The kind of person who willingly settled in a place like Pulteney was not the kind of person who appreciated the imperious, arrogant authority figures encountered by the colonists during the French and Indian War. I'll come back to that later. When Ethan Allen cooperated with a Connecticut militia group to plan an attack on Fort Ticonderoga across the border of New York, the response from the able-bodied and rough-housing men of Pulteney was strong. The Green Mountain Boys were already active in the area, having chased down loyalists and Yorkers following the incident at Westminster, along with several hundred other men who assisted them. Ephraim does not seem to have been part of this post-Westminster-slash-anti-New York group, but rather, according to Zoar, he joined the regiment under John Grant's company shortly after Lexington and Concord when their target pivoted from New York officials to royal ones. The Green Mountain Boys, now numbering 130 or so men, met on 7th of May at Castleton, that's just a few miles north of Pulteney. They were joined by several dozen men from Massachusetts and Connecticut. Ethan Allen had already been in touch with Connecticut's governor, Jonathan Trumbull, and had secured authorization and some funding to take Fort Ticonderoga, for reasons I'll describe in just a moment. Um, this, by the way, would have been an operation that Allen and his regiment would have, to be blunt, accomplished with or without authorization. Massachusetts also wanted the fort for its contents. Again, I'll get to the why in just a moment. And they sent Colonel Benedict Arnold to the Grants to raise men for an expedition, unaware that Connecticut had beaten him to the punch. An attempt by either colony to take the fort had to be subject to secrecy, as Ticonderoga lay across the border in New York, and neither Connecticut nor Massachusetts really had any claim to it beyond immediate need. Arnold, with no prior military experience, was left by Massachusetts to raise not only the men, but the provisions and arms as well, and stood no real chance of accomplishing his mission in any realistic time frame. When he arrived to begin his work, he found that Allen was already all set and ready to go, and he had no choice but to join Allen and squawk loudly and often that he had a commission from Massachusetts. 
The insinuation that this somehow overrode Connecticut's instructions, or quite frankly, the free will of the Green Mountain Boys, that could cause nothing but rancor, and Allen and Arnold's rivalry would prove to be something of an annoyance to the other officers. Several months before this, with the understanding that the ongoing dispute between the colonists and the British government might devolve into violence, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress had already scouted out the area in northern New York. Experience in the French and Indian War had taught many colonists, including some who are now members of the various colonial legislatures, that Fort Ticonderoga, along with its sister fortifications at Crown Point to the north and Lake George to the south, was not just strategically important, but it was perhaps the key to the entire region. Control of the forts was something of a valve, manipulating the traffic from New York in the south to Canada in the north. By occupying all the forts, a military force might then exercise power along the entire Hudson River Valley, thus also cutting New York in the west off from New England in the east. Any conflict that might have broken out between the colonists and the royal government or even a conflict between New York and New England, would thus hinge first and foremost on command of the area around Ticonderoga. It was, to put a very fine point on it, the most important spot on the map in any war involving New England and or New York. Several days after setting out from Castleton, the regiment came to an inlet on the lake across from their target. There they had a short wait, caused primarily by Ethan Allen's faults as a human being. You see, in addition to lacking tact, diplomacy, or subtlety, he also lacked a sense of detail, and he brought his militia to the east side of Lake Champlain without first making arrangements for transporting the men to the west side of the lake. After a short time, several boats were, haha, <laughs> procured, and the men began the crossing. After the first 83 men were across, Allen made the decision to move ahead without waiting for the others, fearing that they would be detected with the coming of dawn. The rest of the regiment on the east side of the lake split into two groups and headed in opposite directions. It is believed that John Grant's company, Ephraim included, was among the 83 men who made the crossing with Allen. It has been more than a century since the Vermont historian Robert Bascom attempted to name all 83 men, and since his attempt, and including it, only about 50 of these men have been reliably identified by name. And Ephraim, I should say, is not among those 50. His absence from the list was likely caused by a lack of documentation available to Baxcom, some of which is now easily available and some of which is not, but it's referenced in existing papers. We can conclude with some confidence that Ephraim was among the 83 by considering the documents found in his widow's Revolutionary War pension file, an invaluable resource for information about Ephraim's life, especially during the war. And in this pension file, there are numerous affidavits and other documents which place him there. Further, the list of men who were identified includes a number from Pulteney and the surrounding area, the area where Grant's company was raised. Certainly, Ephraim's family and friends believed without any doubts that he was present. The story of the fort's capture is a famous one. There are any number of books and articles describing the event in detail, but the short version is this. No one at the fort had heard of Lexington and Concord, and they had no idea that hostilities had broken out. Allen, with Arnold buzzing about rather annoyingly at all times, led his men through an open door in the main gate and brushed past two guards who were entirely unprepared and were quickly subdued. 
Allen approached what he thought was the office of the fort's commanding officer, well, Captain William Delaplace, and, get this, literally knocked on the front door. It was the wrong door, but the pantsless lieutenant who answered directed Allen and his men to the right door, and within moments, Delaplace, still in his pajamas, surrendered. Very rarely in history has such an important strategic prize been won with so little fuss. In addition to several dozen soldiers, the fort was also home to about half as many women and children. The real prize, however, were the cannons. Ticonderoga, as I said, was a strategic spot. And while the fort itself was somewhat in disrepair, the arms captured there were worthy of the fort's importance. According to Bascom, the Green Mountain Boys captured, here's the list, 120 iron cannon from 6 to 24 pounders of various quality, 50 swivels of various sizes for those cannons, two 10-inch mortars, a howitzer, a cohorn, which is a, a type of light mortar, 10 tons of musket balls, three cartloads of flints, 30 new gun carriages, 100 stands of small arms, 10 casks of powder, two brass cannons, 30 barrels of flour, and 18 barrels of various other provisions like pork and beans and peas and so forth. In addition to this, the men left on the east side of the lake under Seth Warner had marched 10 miles north in the wee hours of the morning and quickly took the fort at Crown Point, capturing a similar stash of weapons. While Allen's men were busy taking inventory, a Connecticut engineer and map maker named Bernard Romans, with a contingent of men, moved to take the ruined fort at Lake George. Zoar Blackmer would later imply in one of his affidavits that Ephraim went with Romans, but there's good evidence to doubt this. Ephraim's brother Joseph did not mention in his own account of Ephraim's service, and Romans, uh, with men he raised himself at Connecticut, seems to have gone directly to Lake George without stopping at Ticonderoga. But regardless of whether Ephraim went to Lake George or not, the success of this mission was absolutely vital to the success of the revolution. The following winter, General Washington would use these cannons, captured by the Green Mountain Boys and transported to Boston by Henry Knox, to gently persuade the British to give up Boston. Ephraim had taken part in an event that changed world history, a convincing argument could be made that the United States might not exist today were it not for the capture of Fort Ticonderoga and the use of the fort's cannons at Boston. Not only was it a strategic victory, but it severely undermined a major argument made by the British at the time and by their apologists ever since. Britain's taxation of the colonies was justified by British ex expenditures in winning the French and Indian War. But the success of the Green Mountain Boys called into serious question whether their efforts were even needed. Eighty-three American colonists, funded and equipped mostly by themselves and with exceedingly little effort, had made a molehill where the British military establishment claimed there had been a mountain. And therein lies the real story of Ticonderoga. In order to understand what this meant to the patriots at the time, you have to step back and look at their world. These colonists remembered clearly their experience in the French and Indian War, where they learned the hard way that Englishmen who came to the New World and Englishmen who remained behind were simply too different by this point. They didn't share the same values, they didn't share the same customs, and they didn't trust the same institutions. You see, 
The French and Indian War had taken a great deal out of Massachusetts, which supplied more soldiers for the conflict than any other colony, and they didn't find the British soldiers to be helpful or even pleasant. So when the British government began instituting all these unconstitutional taxes and other regulations on the premise that the colonists owed their security to the efforts of the British, that didn't sit right with the patriots. The British military was, simply put, not wanted, and now Ticonderoga taught the Americans that the British military was, in fact, not needed. Next time, I think I might talk a little bit about this deteriorating situation between the British and the colonies. It's a good topic because it says a great deal about our diverging values in society today, and I'm pretty sure there's a life lesson in all of this. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.